Christmas. It is so fun to get together and sing worship songs, Christmas songs together, Christmas songs that are worship songs like they should be. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 John, almost at the back, 1 John chapter 3. We're going to be continuing our series there this morning. And it's, it's really kind of hard to believe, for me at least, that Christmas is just seven days away. It just really came up quickly this year, it felt like. I hope, hope you're ready to celebrate the birth of our Lord. I, the, the, the people who research this stuff say that some 113 million Americans will be traveling somewhere for Christmas. I know many of our church family members travel away, but then many other family members, relatives come into town and we get to see them. Uh, but I, I think it's kind of neat because it it underscores that people still want to be together and celebrate Christmas with family and friends. And so as we're doing that this, this season, it's, it's a great opportunity to just interact with, with others. But maybe as you're hanging out with people and, and talking, what if someone said to you, hey, you've been going to church for years and you say you're a Christian and that you're saved, but how can you know for sure? What proof can you offer? How would you respond to that? This Christmas, how, how, how can you, how, what's the evidence that you're a Christian? Can you prove it? Can you really prove to yourself and to others that you're a Christian and, and how would you do it? Maybe you'd say, well, I was baptized. And you might have pictures. Some churches give out a baptismal certificate. But does baptism prove that you're a Christian? Someone else might say, well, I've been going to church since I was a child. Or, or look, here's my giving statement. <laughs> but, but, does, but does attendance or giving prove that you're a Christian? Someone else might say, well, I can't really prove that I'm a Christian. But I did say a prayer when I was little, so... I think I'm saved. Well, back when we began this series, it was in August. It's been uh, several months already. I shared with you a story, something that Franklin Graham said when he was leading a service back in my former church in Albuquerque. You remember that? He'd come in there every year around November. Uh, he's, of course, the, the CEO of Samaritan's Purse, and our church would gather shoeboxes, and he'd come and he'd give the message. And, and Franklin Graham can't give the message without sharing the gospel. You know that. Um, but he, he would come for Operation Christmas Child. And by the way, did you know that Riverside was an area drop-off location for Operation Christmas Child this year? Yeah. There were 2,882 shoeboxes collected, packed up, loaded in the truck, and driven down to, the, to a warehouse by Riverside. And, and I'm just thankful for everybody that was involved in that, to Maureen who led that for us, and all of the team of volunteers that worked with her. That's, that's almost 3,000 gifts going out to children all over the world with the gospel message in it. And so I praise God for that. I tried to get Franklin to come here, but he, he was busy. But anyway, Franklin was presenting the gospel, and I told you what he said. It's always stuck with me. He said, I'm not talking about thinking nothing. I'm talking about no one. And, and, and then he said, do you know? 
that if you died tomorrow, you'd be in heaven with the Lord? And, and it's a good question. Do, do you know? Are you certain about that? There's another great preacher, uh, Charles Spurgeon. Most people know him. A hundred years before, he had this to say. He said, if you don't know that you are saved, how dare you go to sleep tonight? Boy, how's that for bold, huh? If you don't know that you're saved, how dare you go to sleep tonight? Both of these statements imply that we can know with certainty whether or not we're a child of God. and Whether or not we'll be in heaven with the Lord. So our whole, well, my question, I guess, as a follow-on is how can you know? That's been the point of this whole series in 1 John. Knowing, knowing with certainty that we have eternal life, that we've been saved. God, God doesn't want us to be uncertain. He doesn't want us to, to wonder. He wants us to know with complete certainty that we're his child, that we're saved. And so he wants us to have that assurance of our salvation. And that's a key point in these letters, these epistles of John. And so this morning we're going to see some very practical ways that you can know for certain that you're saved. And so the message title is Absolute Certainty that leads to, that, oh I put peace in there, I'm supposed to be rest. Absolute certainty that leads to rest. And I see, as I've been studying the text, I see three sections. First, the question of conscience. We're going to look at that. And then secondly, the concept of confidence. A little bit of a tongue twister. And then finally, we'll see the blessing of obedience. Two verses each. And this is kind of what we'll be looking at as we work through it. Now, if you're a note taker, you can jot them down. Or if you don't get to them, we'll, we'll bring them up again as we start each section. So six verses total. And I just want to start by reading through it. So the text says, beginning in verse 19, this then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and we receive from him anything we ask, because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. Those who obey his commands live in him, and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. So the first question, the first section that we want to look at is the question of conscience. And it comes up in verses 19 and 20. And verse 19 begins, it says, this then is how we know that we belong to the truth. This is, it goes right to the question that I asked up front. How can we know? For certain that we're saved. What kind of proof can we offer if someone asks us? Well, I'm not going to make you wait to the end to answer the question. We're going to deal with it right up front. And what we're going to see is that there's two general ways that we can know for certain that we're saved. We'll look at them both. The first is by what we believe. We'll call that the doctrinal test. Let me give you a few verses. Acts 16.31 says, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Pretty simple. 
Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then there's the whole gospel of John that Pastor Dan has been teaching through. The whole gospel, according to chapter 20, verse 31, was written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the first proof of our salvation is found in what we believe. It's, it's doctrinal proof. And for some of you, that might be really satisfying, and others might go, well, is that the best you can do? I mean, that's fine, but I'm kind of a, a hands-on, practical person. Isn't there something tangible that can demonstrate my salvation? Isn't there like a certificate or something that I can put on my desk to show people that I'm saved? Well, there is a practical way. And whereas God's, John's gospel focused on what we believe, his letters, his epistles focus on how we behave. And that's the second proof. It's how we behave. This is the practical test. And it's what we see in our text this morning. And so the practical test, verse 19 says, this then is how we know that we belong to the truth. And it's referring back to what we covered last time where the message was titled Love in Action. Look back at verse 14 for a moment in chapter 3. It says, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. That's referring specifically to fellow believers, brothers and sisters in Christ. Love for our brothers is the practical test of salvation. But we saw last time also that this type of love isn't speaking of a cheap Worldly love, but an agape love, a divine love. It's a highest form of love. It's a love that can only come from God himself. To, to give an example of how the world cheapens this whole notion of love, I have a neighbor that named their dog agape. Their dog. Agape love is is. Divine love, and, and it's comprised of unconditional love. We have to love regardless of how somebody has hurt us. It's, it's, it's unconditional, it's, it's humble. And we, we saw that we have to be willing to stoop to serve others, just like Jesus served us. And it's also sacrificial. It's giving up of ourselves, our time, our treasure, our talents for the good of other people. That's what agape love looks like. And Jesus was our perfect example of that kind of love. Verse 16 says in chapter 3, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Now it goes on to talk about laying down our lives and not talking about dying for them. It's talking about loving them, serving them sacrificially. That's the type of sacrifice. Now, we might have to lay down our life physically, but by and large, it's talking about a living sacrifice. So our vertical relationship with God is proven by our horizontal relationship with others. Now, again, it's not talking about perfection. None of us 
can achieve that. But it is saying that the overall characterization of our lives, the pattern of our lives, should be one of righteousness that's seen in how we love other people. That's what it's saying. And when we see that in our lives, it's evidence, it's proof that we have been saved. And we'll see why as we go forward. So this then is how we know that we belong to the truth. It doesn't get any more practical than that. You want practical proof? It's seen in how you love and serve one another. Do we do that? Do we see that evidence in our lives? Now, if you think about it, this is the same way that others know that we, that we are saved. The same, the same proof that assures us also is evidence to other people because Jesus said, by this all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. That was in the Advent reading this morning. So they'll know it and we ourselves will know it. It's the same evidence for us as for them. So God says, are you unsure about your salvation? Look at the way you love and serve other people. Now, again, a word from last time. Unbelievers can display these same kinds of behaviors. Even a dog can. I mean, a dog can serve you. A dog can. I've seen dogs that sacrifice their lives for their master. But what dogs and unbelievers are doing, it's not motivated by love for the Lord and a desire to glorify him. It's not rooted in faith. Dear, it's, coming, it's not coming from an overflow of God's love for them. And so it's not agape love. It might look similar, but it's not agape love. Now, before we move on, I see something else in verse 19 that I think is really beautiful. First, what it doesn't say, it doesn't say this is how we can know that we're saved. And it doesn't even say this is how we can know that we pass from death to life like verse 14. Look at what it says. It says, this then is how we know that we belong to the truth. What a beautiful metaphor for being a child of God. One who belongs to the truth. Do you belong to the truth? Think about that. If you're saved, you belong to the truth. There's a great battle raging in our culture over truth, isn't there? Things that we know are true because God has revealed it to us are being declared untrue. And things that are untrue are being heralded as the new truth. Not only that, what's good is being called evil, and what's evil is being called good, and it's being celebrated. And, and here's the thing that, that strikes me is anyone that opposes this new definition of truth or good is reviled publicly. They're canceled. They're, they're denigrated publicly for even, in, even suggesting that that these other people are wrong. And it's nothing new. It's been going on for millennia. But it sure does seem to be intensifying in our current climate, doesn't it? Let me give you an example. This fall, the governor of California ran a series of campaign billboards in support of abortion. And here's what is really hurtful. He had the audacity to quote the Bible in support of it. You probably can't read it. But the billboard says, need an abortion? California is ready to help. And then in the small white print, it quoted Mark 12, 31. 
It said, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. In essence, it's equating abortion to love. It's saying if you really love your neighbor, you'll, you'll allow them to get abort an abortion. You'll even help them. What a perversion of the truth. Isaiah 5 verse 20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe. Woe is not a good thing. You don't want to be the recipient of God's woe. That's like, that's like judgment of the highest order. And when we see these kinds of things happening, it pierces the soul of godly people. Like Lot living in Sodom and Gomorrah. Second Peter says that he was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men. And living among them day after day, he was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. Do you feel that, church? Like a torment in your soul as you see this going on. This lawlessness, this filth. I know I feel that. But here's the thing. I glory in the fact that one day God will judge the world. There'll be the big gavel will come down. And God will declare once and for all what is true and what is untrue. What is good and what is evil. Who was right and who was wrong. That'll be God's judgment. And while I don't want to see people condemned to hell, I want to see them come to faith. But boy, won't it feel good when God says, this is true. And there'll be no arguing with him. It'll be a final word. You know what? You will be on a winning side if you're in Christ. Because you belong to the truth. Praise God. So this is how we know that we belong to the truth. I love that. Now, our love for God's people is more than just proof that we're saved. Verse 19 and 20 say it's also, it says, how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. Now, this is kind of, these are interesting verses, and maybe you scratched your head and said, what is, what is this saying? Well, in these verses, you can substitute the word heart with conscience. They're, they're very closely related, the heart, the conscience, the inner person. The conscience is like a moral mediator. And the Bible says a lot about our conscience, and, and what it does. But it's interesting that in society you hear almost no talk about it. And probably because of what it means in terms of moral truth and guilt and shame. People don't want to talk about our conscience anymore. But in the Bible we see four activities of a healthy conscience. And this is something we, we cover in a parenting class as we talk about training up children with a healthy moral conscience. And so the four activities as a moral mediator, the first thing that our conscience does is it prompts us to do right. Maybe you see a person in need and you hear that inner voice saying, you should help them. You have the means. You should do something. That's a prompting to do that which is right. And then the second thing, when you do something right, your conscience affirms you. That was the right thing to do. Praise God. Good job. You know, uh, 2 Corinthians 1.12 says, Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the holiness and sincerity that are from God. It affirms our right behavior. 
And then on the flip side, a healthy moral conscience will also warn you when you're about to do something wrong. Don't do that. That's sin. Don't go there. You can feel that, right? And then if you choose to do it anyway, our conscience does a fourth thing. It accuses us. It says that was wrong. That was sin. Now, when that happens, the only thing, the only right thing to do is to repent and ask forgiveness. Our conscience serves a very helpful role in that it accuses us when we do wrong. And Hebrews 10.22 speaks of the cleansing, uh, uh, cleansing us from a guilty conscience. And so our conscience can prompt and affirm and warn and accuse. But there are other times when our heart or our conscience will condemn us. That's, that's not conviction. It's not the healthy voice that, say, that says, hey, you just did something wrong. It's the condemning voice that says, you're not a believer at all. If you were, you wouldn't have ever done that. You're not saved. You're just pretending. That's a condemning heart or a condemning conscience. And I think all of us experience it from time to time. After all, you know what the Bible says about the heart? It's deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Now, a condemning heart will rob us of the joy and peace and it'll rob us of the joy and peace of the Lord. And it'll make us question our relationship with God. Am I, am I really saved at all? Does he love me? Did he really forgive me? Am I even a believer? These are things that a condemning conscience will try to bring, bring to mind. I, I experience a condemning conscience, a condemning heart. Probably more than, I, than I'd like. For me, it might be something like this. You're not called to be a pastor. If you were, there'd be more people coming to faith. Hmm. You're not called to be a pastor. You're no teacher. If you were, it wouldn't take you so long to prepare a message. And you'd have more time to go spend with people. And you could do more of this or do more of that. Condemning conscience. How can you stand up and talk about sin when you know that you're guilty of the same thing? condemning conscience. Now again, if this is conviction on account of sin, then we need to heed that. We need to listen. We need to repent. But if it's not, when it's just a condemning conscience, when the enemy gets a hold of our, our deceitful heart and is using it to condemn us, then what do we do? Well, this passage gives us two responses. It says, first of all, that we should look at the practical evidence of our faith. And that's seen in how we love and serve other people to the glory of God. This is what verse 19 and 20 are saying. This then, this being the practical evidence of our faith, is how we know that we belong to the truth and we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our heart condemns us. Isn't that interesting? We look back at how we have been loving and serving God's people. And we know we wouldn't be able to do this if God's love was not in us. We wouldn't be able to love in this way. Because again, the horizontal relationships are a reflection of our vertical relationship. 
So when you look back, do you see love and service to our brothers and sisters in Christ in your life? God says, if you do, then when you feel your heart condemning you, go back and look at that. Look at this tangible evidence. It's not just to display to the world that we're saved. It's to give us the assurance and to put our hearts at rest in his presence. Now, again, I'm not talking about perfection, but the overall evidence of our lives. Do we see God's love flowing from us? And then it gives us a second thing. It suggests we should appeal to God. Look at the rest of verse 20. For God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. We can go to God in the truth of his word, and we can say, Lord, you say that if we confess our sins, you're faithful to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God, you say there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You're greater than my heart, Lord. Give me the assurance of my salvation and put my heart at rest. We can appeal to God. I think sometimes we're harder on ourselves than, than God is on us. And by that, be careful. I'm, I'm not minimizing sin or the impact it has on a holy God. But I'm just saying that we need to remember what God says about our sin. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us. Our sins and purifies from all unrighteousness. As far as the east is from the west, so far have your sins been removed from you. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. We need to think about those things that God says about our sin. I like what C.S. Lewis had to say about this. He said, I think that if God forgives us, we must forgive ourselves. Otherwise, it's almost like setting ourselves up as a higher tribunal than him. Let me, let me put it in some different words. It's, this would be like saying to God, God, you say that you've forgiven me, but God, you're wrong. Because I still have these feelings in my heart. And I'm going to believe my feelings over the truth of your word. That's ridiculous, isn't it? But isn't that what we do when we listen to our heart condemning us? We're not looking to the truth of God's word and his forgiveness. We're giving in to the feelings of our heart. And so that's why it says, God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Praise God. Now, the fact that he knows everything, you might go, whoo, hallelujah. You might go, uh-oh. It might bring you joy. It might bring you terror, depending on where you are in relation to God. There is no dirt that anybody can dig up on you and present to God where he's going to go, oh, I didn't know that. I, this whole love thing, I got to think about it again. I had no idea that he or she was doing that. God knows everything, and not only does he know it now, he knew it before you were even saved. He knew it before you were born. Now, if God loved you and died for you when you were his enemy, do you think he can love you any less now that he's your child? No. We need to put our hearts at rest. So if you're a believer, don't be drugged down 
dragged down, drugged down, drugged by a condemning heart. God doesn't condemn you. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He wants to give you assurance of his love and of your salvation. And when we have this assurance, it leads our souls to a place of rest. Ah, oh, I am in the arms of a loving, saving God. Nobody can snatch me out of his hand. Nothing can change his mind. I'm his child. It, it's like the shepherd leading a sheep to the green pastures beside the quiet waters where we can lay down and we can rest in the presence of the Lord. So I hope this answers maybe some questions you might have about our conscience and especially when our conscience condemns us. God is greater than our hearts. Well, let's look next at this concept of confidence in verses 21 and 22. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. Have you ever thought about the fact that God wants you to be confident in his presence? He doesn't want you to be fearful or timid or ashamed. He wants you to be confident. Let me give you a couple of verses. 1 John 2, 28. We, we studied this passage. It says, And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. And then we'll come to this passage in a, probably a few months. 1 John 4, 17. It says, In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment, because in this world we are like him. And then another very familiar passage on prayer, Hebrews 4.16. Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. That's, that, that's very unlike worldly rulers, isn't it? Most worldly rulers just want to keep people in their place. They want to push them down. They're only interested in what they can get out of people. But God wants to build us up. He doesn't take from us. He gives to us. He wants us to be confident in his presence. He wants to draw us near to himself and lift us up. Now, not arrogance, but confidence. This is why we have to lay aside a condemning heart. Because it keeps us from being confident in the presence of God. He wants us to be confident. What a cool thought. Just meditate on that this week. Am I confident? When I, when I come before the Lord in prayer, will I be confident on the day he returns for me? He wants us to be. So what gives us this confidence then? In a word, it's Christ-likeness. Let me point again to what 1 John 4.17 says. It says, we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like him. We're like Christ. This is God's goal for us. He wants us to share in his divine nature and he wants us to be conformed into the likeness of his son. Now we can't do that on our own. But God's not going to do it without us. This is his work. He enables us. We're going to see that. He gives us the ability to 
change. He transforms us. He gives us a new heart. But then he gives us a task too to work on our sanctification, to be like Christ. I put some verses up there for, well, they were there. <laughs> that will show you God's desire for Christ-likeness. So when we come to him in repentance and in faith, he accepts us just the way we are. But he doesn't leave us that way. I'm really thankful for that. You know, some people say God catches his fish and then he cleans them. He cleans us up. He begins transforming us into the likeness of his son. He enables us to love others just like Jesus did. And so when we see this kind of love happening in our lives, it gives us confidence in his presence. Christ is in me. He's working in my life. He's working through me. I never could have loved people like this before. Now I can. So verse 23 then, it goes on, and it says that we also receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. Doesn't that sound great? I mean, we receive from God anything we ask. Boy, a false teacher could take and run with this verse, couldn't they? Like a prosperity gospel. If you just, you just had enough faith, you could have anything you want. Health, wealth, prosperity. But let's not misunderstand this. It's not saying that by loving others, we can have anything we want. As if God is some kind of genie in a bottle and he gives us every wish. But rather, when our conscience is clear and we approach God with confidence, we can have anything that we ask that is in accordance with his will. Important qualification. Look at the second half of verse 23. We receive what we ask because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. In other words, we receive what we ask because our requests are in accordance with his will. That's the boundary. That's the limit. That's a safeguard. It's the will of God. What if you, what if you really could have anything you want? Anything that you ask. What would you ask for? Think about it for a minute. What would you ask about God if you can have anything, regardless of whether it's in his will? I'm sure that we'd soon be asking for things that are probably sinful, maybe self-destructive, certainly opposed to God's purpose for us. And why would a, a loving, righteous God ever give us that? Here's the thing. You don't want what's outside of God's will. And you might go, oh, yeah, I do. <laughs> well, yeah, in your flesh. But believe me, you don't want what is outside of God's will. You really don't. If we knew everything like God knows, the past, the present, the future, if we knew the hearts of all people, if we knew the consequence of every action, then we would realize how right God's will is. And we wouldn't want anything else but the will of God. So this is why it's so important that we bring our thoughts and our desires and even our prayer in line with God's will. Prayer, we, we did a whole series on prayer and we had our 40 days of praying. Prayer is not about conforming God's will to ours, but about conforming our will to God's. Here's, here's a simple illustration. Imagine that you're in a small boat just offshore. 
and you have an anchor or like a grappling hook and you throw it to shore with the line on it and you hook on to something on the shore and you begin pulling it. Are you going to pull the shore over to you? Are you going to move the shore? Or are you going to move the boat toward the shore? That's the goal of prayer. It's to move us and our thoughts and our will to conform to God's. Because he's the only one that knows all things, as the text says. Why would we go against the will of a good, righteous God who knows all things? No, we want to be saying, God, what would you like in this situation? You know what's best, Lord. Show me. Impress it upon my heart. Not my will be done, but thy will be done. That should be our prayer life. So prayer is not about pulling God's will over to ours, but aligning our will with his. So if we're, being, if we're obeying his commands and doing what pleases him, then our prayers are going to be in accordance with his will. And then we'll receive what we ask. Now on the flip side, there are things that can keep us from having this confidence and seeing our prayers answered. One of those is unconfessed sin. I, I read about a man who heard a, sim, a sermon on lies and deceit. And it really impacted him. And so a couple weeks later, he wrote the following letter to the IRS. He said, Dear sirs, I've been unable to sleep, knowing that I've cheated on my income tax. I, un I understated my taxable income and have enclosed a check for $150. Sincerely, taxpayer. P.S. If I still can't sleep, I will send the rest. <laughs> that's not repentance, right? That's, that's holding on to our sin. That's trying to get away with as much as we can. Listen to what King David said in, in Psalm 66, 18. If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. See, unconfessed sin obstructs our, our prayer life and our fellowship with the Lord. It erodes our confidence before God. Now, I'm not talking about some past sin that we weren't even aware of or we can't remember. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when we harbor sin. We know it. We know we're doing it. And we hold it in. We cling to it. We refuse to confess it to God and ask forgiveness. That's, that's what we're talking about. Pastor and author Norman Vincent Peale tells the story of when he was a little boy, he found this big black cigar and he slipped into the alley to light it up. And he didn't like the taste of it, but it made him feel like an adult as he's smoking this cigar. He felt good about that until he saw his dad coming. And so then he real quickly tried to hide it behind his back. And when his dad came up to him, he tried to distract his dad. He, said, he pointed to a billboard of the circus. Oh, dad, dad, can we go? Can we go? Please, let's go when it comes to town. And his father taught Norman a lesson he never forgot. His father said, son... Never make a petition while at the same time trying to hide a smoldering disobedience. Think about that. A smoldering disobedience. That's a, a good word for us. Never petition God when we're hiding a smoldering disobedience. What would that look like? 
in our lives a smoldering disobedience? What might it be? See, if we cherish that rather than confess it, we're not walking in obedience to the Lord. We're not doing what pleases Him, like the verse says. And it will it'll hinder our relationship with the Lord and it'll obstruct our prayer life. So we want to be quick to confess our sin and, and walk in obedience. And John, 1 John has a lot to say about walking as Jesus did. It's then that we'll have this confidence in approaching the Lord and, and our souls will be at rest. Obedience is what? Puts our souls at rest before the Lord. Well, this is kind of the context of this, this, this confidence. I want to look at one more thing, and that's a blessing of obedience in verses 23 and 24. It reads, and, and this is his command to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. Those who obey his commands live in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. So these two verses kind of sum up everything that we've been reading in this letter from chapter 1 on. The first commandment is to believe in the name of his son. Now, that doesn't just mean, you know, believe, yeah, Jesus. He was a real guy and his name was Jesus. I believe in his name. What it's referring to by his name is who he is. And what he's done. It's his name. His reputation. It includes his virgin birth. His sinless life. His deity. His death. His burial. His resurrection for our sin. It includes his commission that he gave to us. And it includes his spirit that he sent to us. This is, this is all what it means to believe in the name of Jesus. And John has been emphasizing this from the beginning. Remember how he opened the letter? I love these words. First John 1 John 1.1, he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which our eyes, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We've seen it. And we testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. This is what we're called to believe in. The name of Jesus Christ. Now here's the thing. We all have faith in the sense of every person has the capacity to believe. The capacity to believe. It's not a question of if we have faith. It's a question of what we place our faith in. Are we placing our faith in the name of Jesus Christ? Psalm 20 verse 7 says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. We have to believe in the name of the Lord, what, who he is and what he's done for us. That's the first command. And then the second one is to love one another as he commanded us. Faith and love always go together. They're like the Siamese twins in the New Testament. They go hand in hand. Remember, we saw this last time. You cannot love God without loving his people. It's impossible. If you believe and trust in God, you will love his people. Faith and love go hand in hand. First uh, John 4.20, anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Can't do it. 
Faith and love. So we have these two commands. To believe in the name of the Lord. And to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And loving others is the fulfillment. Loving God and loving others is the fulfillment of every command in the Bible. All 613 of them. Love God. Love one another. And then look at, look at the blessing that follows. Verse 24. Those who obey his commands live in him. And he in them. We enter into this relationship with the Lord. We live in him and he lives in us. If you have an ESV translation, it says we abide in him and he abides in us. That's, that's a pretty good word. And again, Pastor Dan has been teaching about God's abiding, our abiding in Christ. As he's been going through the gospel of John. To abide is the closest possible relationship that a person can have with God in this life. Abiding. It's a constant, unbroken fellowship with the Lord. Abiding in Christ. At Christmas, we, we often speak about Emmanuel, right? One of the names for the Lord, Emmanuel, meaning God with us. But this is something even more. I don't even know if the, if the Jewish people who were waiting for the arrival of the Messiah, if they even understood this, they probably thought about God being with them. But this is talking about more than God with us. This is talking about God within us. Within us, his indwelling. That's the most joyful, rewarding, soul-satisfying experience we could ever have. The God of all creation living dwelling, abiding in us. Those who obey his commands live in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. So when we place our faith in Christ, he gives us his Holy Spirit. The spirit of Christ, it's called. As soon as that Holy Spirit is living within us, everything begins to change. We have a whole new outlook and perspective. We see the world very differently. We see our lives. We see others very differently than we used to. We have a whole new set of values. We have a whole new set of desires. We develop a hunger for the word of God. The thing that used to turn us off. Now it's like, oh, this is written to me. I want to get in this. I want to read it. I want to understand it. We have this desire to worship God. I think unbelievers, they come into a church and what is, what is all that? What, what is all this stuff? It's weird. But now when the Spirit of God is living in them, they have this desire to worship the Lord. We have a desire to fellowship with one another. We love to get together. We love to talk about the Lord. We love to share what he's doing in our lives and encourage one another. Everything begins to change. And and. What we find is we now have this capacity to love other people with a godlike love, with the divine love, in a way that we never could before. And this comes when the Holy Spirit pours out his love into our hearts. From the overflow of that, we have this new ability to love other people. This is what Romans 5, 5 says. So God had poured out his love into our hearts by the Spirit whom he has given us. Think about that. Didn't sprinkle it. Didn't, didn't use an eyedropper. He poured out his love. 
And now we got the love of God in us. And we can love other people. And this love is the proof that Christ is living in us. And it's the very practical proof of our salvation. How can you prove that you're a believer? By the way you love our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's only possible if God has poured his love into you. We can't see his spirit. I've never seen it. But we can see the love that comes from his spirit within us. So, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Well, let me just recap a couple things as we wrap this up. First, I'm one point behind. First, the proof of our salvation comes in two forms. What we believe and how we behave. It's a doctrinal test and a practical test. It's an evidence not only to the world, but to us as well. It assures us that we've been saved. Next, a condemning heart will rob us of joy and peace in the Lord. Are you resting in the Lord? Do you have a sense of peace? Do you have the ability to say, the world may be going to hell, but and, and I'm not happy about that, but man, I have this security, this rest, this peace, this joy in the Lord in the midst of all that. We all experience a condemning heart from time to time. And when we do, God says, look at the practical evidence of his love in your life. It's seen in how we love and serve our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, that's a test. Do we see evidence of that in our lives? We also need to remember that God is greater than our heart. His word and his truth prevail over our feelings. So we don't want to be dragged down by a condemning heart. Thirdly, God wants us to be confident in his presence. Confident when we pray. Confident when he returns. Confidence comes from Christ-likeness in our lives. It comes from obedience, not perfection. But Christ-likeness in our lives, that gives us that confidence. Hopefully we can all look back and go, it's the end of the year. We can look back and say, man, I've really seen God grow me this year. Not just that I'm at church more regularly, but I've seen God working in me. I've been feeling a change in my own heart. And I've been seeing it in the way I'm loving and serving people around me. This is the work of God in us and it, and it gives us confidence. Another point, faith, love, and obedience, they lead to answered prayer. We receive anything we ask, provided it's within the will of God. So prayer conforms our will to his. God lives in those who believe. And he lives in us by his spirit. And that's what enables and empowers us to love others with the Christ-like love. Again, we can't see a spirit, but we can see the love that it produces in our lives. And it should be an evidence to ourselves that we're saved and an evidence to other people. And finally, it's not God's desire to condemn anyone. I love that 
this morning in the reading, it was not only John 3.16, it was John 3.17. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That's a Christmas passage. He's not willing that any should perish. He wants every single person to be saved. And beyond that, to have an assurance of their salvation that leads to rest. That's what God wants for you, to be saved and have an assurance. There is no excuse for anybody leaving here this morning not knowing where they stand before the Lord. Uncertain of whether they're saved or not. Because that kind of a that kind of thing can just lead to unrest in our lives, a restless soul. But Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Isn't that beautiful? A simple invitation that goes out to every single one of us. So God loves us. And his his love working through us is the evidence of our salvation. It's what gives us a confident assurance in his presence. It's what puts our souls at rest. Would you pray with me? Lord God, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And this is your word, God, and your word is truth, and we can trust it. We can trust it beyond our own feelings, God. There is absolute truth. You are truth, God. And you've, you've recorded your, your word and your truth for us. I thank you that you're real and we can know you, God. We can live in you and you in us. And so this, this Christmas, God, as we interact with family members and friends and neighbors, many of whom don't know you, God, I just pray that they would see you in us, that they would see your love flowing through us. And that through that, God, that you would draw them to yourself. Help them to know this amazing gift that you've given us in this little baby Jesus who grew up and led a sinless life and then took upon himself the penalty for our sin, God, who died, was buried, who rose again, and who offers us that forgiveness and eternal life. God, help them to see the joy on our faces and the peace in the midst of a, of a turbulent world. God, we want them to know you. I pray that you would draw these people to yourself, that you give us the words when appropriate to share with them that would give them the reason for the hope that we have. And God, we want you to receive all the worship and the glory and the praise. And so it's in Jesus' powerful name that we ask these things. Amen.